listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. What would it mean to consider Jesus, whether or not he existed, what events happened in his life, and what it all meant if we didn't have the Gospels? What would it be like to look at the life of Jesus without the Gospels and instead simply examining Jesus based on what led up to his life and what came after his life? Sounds like a bit of an impossible question, except it wasn't for today's guest, Jay Warner Wallace, author of Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, asked that very question. Jim is a cold case detective. He is a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a popular national speaker and best-selling author. Relying on more than two decades of his investigative experience as a detective, Jim provided some tools needed to investigate the claims of Christianity from that unique experience. In today's episode, we talk about what are some of the approaches? How did Jim go about doing that? Why did he go about doing it? And we converse around what might the benefits be? What opportunities might we as Christians have to present Jesus in a world that is skeptical of the Bible? Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor, and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley, and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum, and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shapit, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Jim. It's great to have you with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, published by Zondervan, authored by Jay Warner Wallace. You are a guest here today, so maybe I'd like to start out by asking you to tell us a bit of your story. How did you come to believe in the biblical accounts of Jesus, including his life, death, and resurrection? What's the story of Jim? I was raised here in Southern California, Los Angeles County, and I wasn't uh, really raised around anybody who was in the church, who was part of the church. I didn't have friends growing up who were who were identified as Christians and really had no reason to enter an evangelical church for anything other than maybe like a wedding until I was about 35. My wife was interested, you know, should we raise our kids with some type of spiritual understanding? And I thought, well, no, I mean, I wasn't raised that way. I don't know why we would need to raise our kids that way, but she was more interested than I was. She had kind of been raised in a kind of a culturally Catholic setting. So she had at least been at masses as a kid and, and, you know, didn't probably know much more than I did about Jesus of Nazareth, to be honest with you, in terms of like, we weren't, we didn't have a Bible in the house, for example, but I, I was willing to go if she wanted to go just because I wanted to make her happy. My dad was somebody back in those days too, who would have been very, very happy to go to church as a non-believer if it made his wife happy. And his second wife, that's been pretty much describes what he would do. And so I was willing to go as well. Uh, but with that first time we were in church, I, would, I had been on the job working investigations about eight years when I stepped foot in there. And I was working undercover at the time, actually. And I remember the pastor was clever enough, kind of communicative enough 
to think he, he could reach non-believers. And he's, he made this claim that Jesus of Nazareth was the smartest man who ever lived. And that's really what provoked me to, to get a Bible and see if that was true. And that's what really started the investigation for me, trying to determine if the gospels were telling me something true about Jesus. And I, and I tried to really investigate those and to analyze those as eyewitness statements, because there are criteria that we use in investigations to determine if a witness is telling us the truth or if he was really there to say to you know to see to say what he said he saw and so it was really a matter of applying those techniques and those principles to the gospels that got me interested and then ultimately led me to the foot of the cross i just have to pause and really ask you you said you were undercover when you went to church did you see anybody that you were worried that was seeing you in that place that maybe there were somebody that you were surprised to see in church no, you know, I, I, I live far enough away from, I think most police, well, not all of us, but as many of us in Los Angeles County anyway, try not to live in the same community that we work. I realize there's an advantage to that, right? But the problem with that, of course, is that when you work in the same community where you live, it's like you're never off duty. You know, every time you're off duty and you're in, in the city, that you're constantly around the same people that you might have had contact with on duty yesterday. So I, I try to stay, to keep a, a separation between those two. You know, it's interesting. My mind is running with that with that undercover thing, in part because there might be people that, that are coming to church mm-hmm. and, and they're saying like, man, I, my life feels undercover, right? There might be things that they're trying to hide. There might be things that that just in the in the run of their business, their family, whatever else, that they're trying to do that kind of life management. And yeah. one of the things that that I think has, let's say, sparked people to come out from undercover is whenever they really do start to place trust in the scriptures that have been given to them. And it's not an immediate trust. It's a trust that's not a substitution for faith in Christ. It's it's a trust that, oh, I, I've got reliable documents here. Right? I've got I've got something that is telling me something that's worth shaping my, my life by in scholarship conversations. There's different ways that we think about that and different angles that we that we approach to it. We have historical critical studies. We have form critical studies. We have ways to engage scripture as, as literature, right? different angles at it. Sure. You came at it as an investigator, right? You came at scripture as, as you said, as an, as an investigator. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it meant to approach the life of Jesus with this unique set of skills? Well, and I'll tell you that, and I'm familiar with a lot of the other ways that we like form criticism, other ways that we can kind of analyze the text to see if it's telling us something true. And I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'll tell you why. So a lot of what we're doing, uh, working cold cases, and that's what most of my career has been, it's been working on unsolved murders from the past. And we have documents that were written in the past. Sometimes eyewitnesses will make claims about what happened in 1970. And that witness is no longer available to me now. Maybe they passed away. And now sometimes the report writer, the person who wrote the supplemental report chronicling what the witness said, that person is no longer available to me either. So now I got to figure out if this document, which I'm looking at, and I've got several of these reporting the same event, is reliable, even though I have no access to the eyewitnesses and no access to the report writers. Well, that's very much what we're doing with the Gospels, right? We have no access to the eyewitnesses and no access to the people who are writing about the eyewitnesses or writing for, like, for example, Luke or Mark. It's a very similar skill set. And unlike the historical approach, historians don't get to, change, don't get to test their theories in a laboratory consistently. But investigators typically do. It's called criminal trials, right? So we get a chance to take these ideas, these approaches that we take to validating or to discovering if an account is reliable, and then we throw them out and test them in front of jurors. And sometimes jurors feel like this is 
evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And sometimes they don't. And we learn from that back and forth. You're constantly pressing into service in front of an interactive audience called a jury. It's like a laboratory. It's like a laboratory for epistemology. How do we know what we know? Well, we have these laboratories we conduct this experiment in every day all across America. And I'm, I'm, I'm helping on a trial right now that is here in Los Angeles County. And I'm just watching the testimony each day and trying to make assessments. So I just tried to press into service the approaches that we were taking in criminal trials. And a lot of what I see, for example, is that a lot of scholars, biblical scholars even, will arrive at certain assumptions about the text because they see what they consider to be difficult differences in between the accounts. And then how do you reconcile those differences between the accounts? Of course, if you've worked eyewitnesses, you know that I've never had a case in which eyewitnesses ever agreed. They don't agree. And there's lots of reasons why they don't agree. And you discover what those are as you are working these kinds of cases. And then you have to communicate that to jurors. And that's kind of what I try to do on a regular basis. But I'm, I'm also, though, very slow to jump to a literary theory if all it's trying to do is explain a difference in the Gospels, because it turns out that those differences are exactly what we ought to expect, expect if these are reliable eyewitness accounts taken by a number of people who see the same thing, but for any number of reasons, be it geographic proximity or be a, a series of events in their own life in the past, their likes, their dislikes, their predispositions. These are things that shape the way you give an account. And that's what I'm seeing in the gospels. And that's actually what gave me confidence. I should start testing them. I actually only became interested in testing the gospels when I saw that they had the level of, of differences that I would expect to see in multiple eyewitness accounts. And that's what got me started to begin with. One of the, the best books that I've, I've come across in the, to the last 10 years, Treating the Gospels as Eyewitness, is a book just by that title, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, a New Testament scholar and theologian. Bring us into how you've done this study. So Bauckham, he, he engages in things like memory and how people remember, and you just briefly introduced that, right? We see the world based on likes and dislikes and, and vantage points and, and all these kinds of things. What are some things that might be helpful to readers of the New Testament that they would be able to start to do some of the analysis that you did, right? So they, they read different discrepancies that maybe things are, are placed at different points in the in the text. I mean, just this morning, I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke, and mm -hmm. Jesus has the, the discussion about who will be greatest at the Last Supper, whereas in Mark, that comes earlier after the healing of the blind man, Bartimaeus. I'm just thinking, like, which happened when, and, and is there a reason that they're in different points of view? maybe a question for another time specifically, but I'd love to hear from you. What are some of the techniques that you might be able to teach us real quickly that we could engage the New Testament in a similar way that you did? Well, now you're discussing some of the contents of my first book, Cold Case Christianity. And in that book, I try to give you 10 techniques we use in cold cases that apply directly to the gospels and then turn a corner and show you how uh, you know, the four areas of reliable eyewitness testimony and how those 10 techniques play into those four areas. So for example, we know already that Mark's gospel is not in the correct order. Number one, we can see when we compare it to Luke, that Luke's gospel has got things in a different order. Papias, a very early bishop, uh, Antonicene bishop, tells us that, in fact, Mark's gospel is accurate, if not orderly, and he uses a Greek word for order that, that means in the correct chronological order. It's the exact same word that Luke uses in the first chapter of the gospel of Luke when he says to Theophilus, I am writing for you an orderly account. If you're writing an historical account, why in the world would you need to tell me it's in the correct chronological order? 
aren't all historical accounts in the correct chronological order? Well, you might be using that word if, in fact, you're trying to differentiate your account from another early account. And there is another early account that Papias says is not in the right order, and that is called the Gospel of Mark, who Papias says is chronically at the feet of Peter in Rome and not aiming at chronological accuracy as much as he's aiming at event-by-event accuracy. And who do you think Luke quotes more than any other source in his gospel? He quotes the gospel of Mark. So it's almost as though he's telling Theophilus, I've got Mark stuff in here, but now it's in the right order. So I think in the end, the question becomes, well, can we consider something to be divinely inspired if it's not in the right order? Well, you could expect that if, in fact, Mark started off by saying it was in the right order, but that's never been a claim of Mark. So again, we all will come back and give to you the details of a particular event in a particular order. Sometimes that order is an order that's hierarchical. We, we kind of think, hey, in my mind, this is more important than that. So I gave it to you first. Now, what's great about doing cold cases is if you do have access to the eyewitness, I can go back and I can say, hey, why did you say this back then? And maybe he'll clarify for me. Uh, I'm not going to tip my hand that, that I have a different account that contradicts his. I'm just going to ask him for clarification on that one thing. But we don't have access to those eyewitnesses in the Gospels. So that's why we see the level of variance that we see. And it's exactly what you would see in a case just from four hours ago. If I have a murder and there's five witnesses, trust me, that first set of descriptions is going to contain just the kind of stuff that defense attorneys love because they'll find subtle variations. And the things that cause those variations are not just proximity in the room. Maybe you didn't see it, but it's what you, you've had an experience that causes you to focus on one aspect of what you're visualizing. You know, it's true when we talk about officers and suspects, we develop a tunnel vision. And that's why sometimes a video that shows the entire interaction, you can say, well, officer, why didn't you see this thing over here in the corner? Well, I can see it's there now in the video, but that wasn't what I was focused on in the interaction. I missed it. And this is true for everyone viewing something with a certain amount of focus. So the question just becomes, what am I focused on? Then, of course, there's a retelling issue. Like, like what, am I, what do I think you're asking me? If I think you're asking me and you really are interested in this narrow range of the narrative, I may only give you back the narrow range. If, for example, I think you're only interested in the people in the scene who said something, I may only recite back to you the people in the scene who said something. You'd have to ask me, well, was anybody else there? Oh, yeah, but I thought you were after that other thing. So, so you get this kind of thing in every eyewitness testimony, and this is exactly what we have in the Gospels. One of the strategies you use and that you lay out in person of interest is called fuse and fallout. Talk to us a little bit about this method, fuse and fallout. Well, what I try to do with person of interest is write the, the kind of photo negative of cold case Christianity. Cold case Christianity kind of focuses on the gospels. How do we know that those gospels are reliable eyewitness accounts? And then what we do with person of interest is say, okay, let's just pretend like there are no gospels. What if every single New Testament gospel had been destroyed? And there was no manuscript evidence at all for Jesus of Nazareth. What could we know from everything that's outside the Gospels? And from those elements of culture and history, could we reconstruct clearly the elements of Jesus's life and ministry to the point where we wouldn't even need a Gospel because there's enough information out there 
even without the New Testament, to be able to reconstruct who Jesus was, his historicity, and his deity. That's really the project for person of interest. And the reason why I thought that was important is because I didn't trust the Gospels. When I first started, I didn't. And, and it's kind of like when you work a no-body murder. A man kills his wife and gets rid of her body and then claims that she ran off. And then two years later, someone finally decides to work it as a murder. But now it's too late because he's moved and he's destroyed the crime scene. And there's not even any evidence in a crime scene to work. Now we've got an empty crime scene. How do I convince a jury of what happened if I don't have a crime scene? Well, I try to tell the jury that bomb went off on the day of her disappearance. Something happened, explosive happened, and she disappeared. And now the question is, well, there was a fuse that burned up to that explosion. And then there's fallout all over the blast radius after that explosion. And that's what we're going to show you as a jury. We're going to show you how the fuse leading up to her disappearance and the fallout that occurred after her disappearance point back specifically to her husband as the suspect. And the fuse and the fallout are typically how we do nobody murders. And so the same thing we're doing here, we're saying, hey, is there enough fuse in history leading up to the explosive appearance of Jesus and enough fallout in history following his appearance in history to indicate that, number one, he existed as described in the New Testament and that his appearance in history was something more than temporal, that something more than human. There was something divine about the nature of Jesus that would explain the fuse and the fallout And that's what we try to do in person of interest. It's a really interesting approach because the last generation was so formed by the famous Billy Graham line, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. I had a guest on maybe 18 months ago or so. He was saying, he said, Aaron, people don't care what the Bible says, right? I I talked to my kids about it and they're, it's a faithful family and his children are coming through adolescence. and, And he said, I tell them the Bible says, and they go to Siri, right? They go to Alexa, right? They're asking questions and they're, they're analyzing. And of course, there's no end of sources that are going to be critiquing scripture. And of course, I think scripture welcomes critique. I think there's there's a, sure. a nature to it. But the approach that you said is like, well, let's take those out and let's see what's leading up to it, what's gone on after, and then how do we use the evidence to reconstruct what's missing? And I think that's a really interesting approach because it might lead people into scripture, but it doesn't start with a presumption that they just believe what the text says. Right. Yeah. No, listen, I, I was not somebody who believed it either. And not only that, I, I'm not somebody who when I became a Christian, I couldn't understand why the church works the way the church does. I know it sounds terrible to say, but imagine, for example, if you had an alien who was coming to visit planet Earth and he's on his way there and he's almost landed and his adjutant says, hey, you know, there's a bunch of Christians on planet Earth. Do you want to understand what they're about? I've got this book called the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's actually a chapter in the Bible. There's a book called Book of Acts that'll show you how they interact in the world, right? So you can see what they believe through all the gospels, who Jesus was, all the letters of Paul. But if you look at the Book of Acts, you can actually see how they interact in the world. Okay, great. So I read the Bible. Now I land on planet earth. Do you think I'd be surprised at what I discover in terms of our life as Christians on planet earth and the church's life on the planet? I think you would. I think that and this is who I was. I was that alien. I didn't have any interaction with the church. I drop into the middle of it at the age of 35. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. I believe the gospels are telling me something true and that they're telling me something true, not just about Jesus, but also about me and my need for a savior. It just opened my eyes to that, what I've been missing all along. At the same time, I'm like, okay, I get that. I'm in, but I don't understand why the church is doing it this way. In other words, what I've seen, and I can be just ignorant of, of enough depth of church history to be able to, to make this kind of a claim, but it seems to me that most people I meet today have become Christians on the basis of a personal experience. 
they know that Jesus has come into their heart in some way they can express tangibly. It's either an experience they've had, it's a change of heart they've experienced, or they were raised in the church and they will say, okay, this is, I'm a Christian because I was, my parents raised me this way. But I will tell you, my dad remarried and I have a whole family of half brothers and half sisters, six of them who were all raised LDS. And if you ask them why Mormonism is true, they will tell you they've had an experience of the Holy Spirit that confirmed for them that the Book of Mormon is true and Joseph Smith's a prophet of God, or they'll tell you they were raised in the church. So those two things, an experience of Jesus, they would say, and of scripture, they would say, does not necessarily guarantee you have a right idea or a right notion about who God is or who Jesus even is. And I wonder why is it we don't spend more time investigating our way in. And I wrote a whole book about this called Forensic Faith, where I'm just talking about how did people proclaim the, the, the truth of Jesus in the first century? Look, read through the book of Acts. You will never see them talk about some transformational experience they have aside from being eyewitnesses to their risen Christ. Eyewitness testimony is called direct evidence. It's the, one of the forms of two forms of evidence we use in criminal trials. It's a very evidential approach. As a matter of fact, to pick apostles on the basis of their eyewitness status, right in Acts chapter one, when you're replacing Judas with Matthias and the criterion for his replacement is we need someone who's seen the risen Christ and saw them all the way from the baptism to the risen Christ, to the resurrection. So that we're looking for eyewitnesses. Well, we're looking for direct evidence because this is a very evidential faith. It is never, I don't see anywhere in scripture. Of course, scripture describes the fact we will have transformational experiences. We will have a renewing of our mind, but it does not argue that you'll know if you're in the right place on the basis of some transformational experience. And most people, when you talk to them about, well, can you give me like five reasons? Like, you know, Give me five pieces of evidence I can use to determine why I should care about your Bible. They're going to be flat-footed because that's not the way we came in. We didn't come in that way. We came in emotionally through an experience rather than rationally through the evidence. And I know it's not a either or, it's a both end. And I want both. I don't want just a purely rational experience. I know there's a transformation of the heart that must take place. But it seems to me if we focus on the transformation of the heart, you can end up in any number of places, including any number of heretical views, all kinds of crazy views of Christianity. Again, you're getting there on the basis of how it makes you feel rather than on the basis of whether or not it's true. Yeah, like what you say, there, there's no shortage of avenues for experience, right? There's no shortage of people businesses, organizations, movements that want to tell you a really compelling story to get the feels all worked up so that you're, you're ready to charge with them, yes. right? Buy a product, sign up, sign the petition, create a Facebook post, you know, do something, gather with somebody else, right? There's no shortage of those yeah. opportunities. And thank God that we are experiential beings. What a gift it is. But whenever I was working with teens in my, my first church, Part of what my conviction was, was, man, I've got to give them things that will fill in the gaps when these experiences go away or yes. whenever other experiences are vying for their attention, whenever they have other experiences are going to compete with them. And so, like you said, it's, it's not a both end, but it might be, there might be a way that we buttress, we support, we fill in gaps with one or the other at different times. I love that. That's, that's part of what you're doing here with, with person of interest. And I think in a uniquely specific time and a uniquely appropriate time when there are people who they don't believe the Bible, but beyond that, 
they don't believe anything, right? They're not anti-Bible. There's, there's no reason to believe it. And so we have to start speaking a language that starts to draw them in. It starts to give them evidence and compelling reasons, as scripture says, to defend the faith, right? To defend what it is that we believe. That's a way, actually, that we honor and glorify God is to be well-equipped to articulate our faith and to give reasons for why we hold to it the way we do. Part of what we try to do there, I think there are significant things in history that lead up miraculously to the appearance of Jesus, so that at the time he sets foot on planet Earth, he becomes perfectly situated in the fullness of time to do exactly what it is that God wants done. And so I wanted to be able to kind of, and I really discovered some surprising things as I investigated the fuse that leads up to the appearance of Jesus. But here's what I discovered about the fallout. It turns out, if so if you are somebody who does not you're not interested in the Bible. And I totally understand why young people are much larger percentage of that population that does not give a lick about the Holy Scriptures. But it turns out if you're not a believer, if you're just a secularist or you're an atheist, the things that matter most to you that you probably most enjoy and uh, love to participate in have been so deeply impacted by the person of Jesus that without Jesus in history, you would not be experiencing these things in the same way. So for example, as an atheist, you know, I was in the arts before I became a detective. I was an architect until I was 27. So I had an undergraduate degree in design and a master's degree in architecture. And I, then I you know, did that for a number of years. And then I came over as a detective. And, and I'll tell you that um, the things that matter most to me as a non-believer, well, it was art, literature, the visual arts and literature, music, um, education, science, those are the things, those five things are of high importance to non-believers, even in our culture today. Literature, art, music, education, and science reign in our country, okay? And now, uh, let me ask you, do you have any idea of the impact that Jesus, you would not even have art as we know it, music as we know it, for sure you wouldn't have the sciences. The sciences have been so deeply impacted by the worldview inaugurated by Jesus of Nazareth that when you read that chapter in the book, and it's fully illustrated, so I kind of like, this is like a graphic novel in a sense, right? I mean, it's got 400 illustrations in it. And the idea here is to help people move through in a, in a language that, that I know that most people in our generation are familiar with, right? We're all visual beings. But the reality of it is, once you see the impact that Jesus and his followers with the Christian worldview had on the sciences and continue to have on the sciences. This is not just a, a blip in history. Well, the vast majority of significant modern fields of science were founded and fathered by Christ followers, all the way through quantum mechanics, all the way through to computer sciences. And I've got an entire list of 950 of just the science fathers and their disciplines. And from their personal writings, about Jesus of Nazareth, you can reconstruct every detail of the Jesus story in its most robust form. You can reassemble more about Jesus from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers. That's the impact that Jesus had in his thinking, in the worldview he inaugurated. And I think young people need to see it because there's a sense almost like, hey, if I'm going to be a scientist today, I'm going to have to reject my Christian beliefs or at least reject the form of supernaturalism that is dictated by Christian beliefs. And it turns out you'd be in poor company because all the science fathers held to both of those views. They were supernaturalists who excelled in the sciences. And I think that's a, that's a message we've got to get out in front of our kids. Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, published by Zondervan Press, authored by J. Warner Wallace. Jim is here speaking to us about his experience with the book, about how his story came about, and about why he wrote the book that he did. 
Jim, let me just ask you a couple more questions. One is to do with why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. So you're dealing with a number of objections to Christian faith, and we've talked about a few of them here and just most recently in the last comment where you say, well, some people think they have to check their brains at the door, right? They have to give up some of their beliefs if they're going to pursue fill in the blank science or art or music or something like that. Which objection is most prominent in your experience? And a slightly altered way of, of asking a different question, but connected is, which objection do you think is most challenging to Christians to answer today? So which is most common? And then which objection is most challenging? Okay. So, you know, we do a lot of work on college campuses and then you get Q and A's at the end of those presentations and you get kind of a sense for what is going to be asked. We've got another coming up here to Ohio State here shortly. So, so if you look at the kinds of questions that come in, uh, they're typically going to fall in a couple of areas. The number one fall for years was always going to be something, some version of the problem of evil. If there's a good God who's all powerful and all loving, how can he allow something unloving to occur in the world when he clearly has the power to stop it? So, so the question becomes, well, how do I reconcile various forms of evil? Even when I see it and I would label it as Christian hypocritical evil. So we got to be able to address those issues. Two will be the entire category on the reliability of scripture. Or do you believe the craziness that's described? So it's a, a kind of a naturalistic view. Like how can I believe in a talking donkey or a snake or, or some of the things that we see in scripture? So that's another level. And why, you know, again, like you mentioned, the variances between the gospels or any number of objections raised by Bart Ehrman. Those are the kinds of things that you'll see also on the campus. But there's a whole nother level, I think now, a third category, which is maybe ascending to the first position and that is that the teaching, the moral teaching of Jesus is under attack, right? And in the past, I think we might have said in my dad's generation, I may not like the church, I may not like Christianity, but I do like this Jesus guy. Uh, I could live with that guy, but this is how it kind of fleshes out in the church. I don't like that. Okay, well, I'm not sure people like Jesus anymore because the moral teaching about Jesus related to um, sanctity of life and identity and marriage and sexuality, all of these things are pretty much opposed to the positions of the world around us. And this has happened very quickly. In the last 10 years, they've really come into a collision course so that now to, to hold to the teaching of Jesus as a Christ follower, as a Christian, may be seen by a world that wants to put all of us in a box of one nature or another. Look, I think that that category of objections is going to, to rise. And I think that's, I think that kind of goes to the second question you're asking. I think those are going to be the hardest to answer. Because look, if I'm trying to help you through a variance in the scripture, or I'm trying to help you with a form of some form of theodicy that kind of resolves the problem of evil. You're probably much less emotionally connected. I think the problem of evil is very emotionally charged for sure. But if it's just a manuscript evidence thing, well, I can show you how we resolve those problems. But if in the end, I'm asking you to adopt a view that'll make you the arch enemy of everyone on social media and everyone at your school and everyone in your, your friends and your community is going to isolate you in one of these areas because you'll now hold a Christian view of morality that's a big ask. And I can offer the reasoning behind it. I can even make a case for why Jesus meant X, Y, or Z when he said X, Y, or Z in the scriptures, but that's not going to make it any easier for you to live tomorrow. And I think what's happened is, is that we have forgotten that Jesus consistently and repeatedly told us that if you adopt the views that I am preaching to you today, stand by to stand by. He says this at the end of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? He says, blessed are you when, not if, people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
So this idea that we are going to have all kinds of things said against us, falsely said against us because of our trust in Jesus as Lord, was something that Jesus told us about 2,000 years ago. Now, I think we have a tendency to kind of pitch Jesus without those um, truths. We kind of read over those areas of scripture. But and here's, the, here's the question we have for young people. Is this right enough? Is this true enough? Is this holy enough? Is this noble enough for you to put yourself in the bullseye? Because Jesus said you would if you do this, if you follow him. Imagine if you're selling any product in America and the sales for the product is that if you buy our product, your life will be harder. Most people are not buying that product. And so here we have a worldview that we have to argue is noble and righteous enough to warrant whatever abuse we might take in an ennoble, unrighteous world. And I think that's the, the, harder, the harder objections to answer now. Yeah, certainly there's, a, there's an opposition that comes. Yeah. And as, as an educator, one of the things I consistently have to remind myself is that all education starts with, with some kind of dissonance, right? With yeah. being challenged that something I believe isn't true, or the reason I have for believing something is a, is a weak reason, or is maybe a misguided reason that there's education always requires dissonance and, and likewise sanctification. So in the Wesleyan tradition, we talk a lot about sanctification, being made holy by God, having our, our hearts transformed to desire the good and being given a will that is to help us carry yeah. out those holy desires. There, there comes a recognition that if I'm going to be transformed by God, then I recognize I need transforming, right? There's there's a pattern of life that is misguided. There's, a, there's an aspect of my will that is not acting appropriately. It's not acting as the will is meant to act, to drive us towards God and to, to give us strength for a desire for God to be carried out. Well, it gives us a lot to think about, especially as we're talking to pastors and people who are shepherding maybe their teens or families through some of these things and welling up in them. Maybe the, you think about the virtue of fortitude, right? And courage. That's an aspect of what we're talking about. And suddenly you start to see how the mind and the heart are not as separate as they, as they were, right? Like there's ways that these right. are inevitably coming together. If we're going to track the evidence the best way we can and follow our reason the best way we can, then the heart is going to be challenged. All right. Maybe I would be remiss to have a cold case detective on the program and not ask this question because I'm a, I'm a huge Law & Order fan. SVU has been on for 20 years and I, I watched know. it before it was on that. What's the best one, man? What's the, what's the best crime drama we got on network television these days? Well, okay. So it's hard, right? So if it, the term crime drama, I think that drama means that you've got to have some kind of fictional, in some ways, elaboration of what's true, right? Because it's not a documentary, if you say what's the best crime documentary, that'd be different, right? But there, but in terms of like crime TV shows, I always tell my audiences that all of them are terrible. None of them are good, except for those that do the best job they can to be more documentary-like. So for example, I've done a bunch, I think I've been on Dateline more than any other detective in the country, but Dateline does a pretty decent job of mixing documentary with a small little B-roll, uh, they don't try to like make it all fiction, right? There is a show out there. Dateline, of course, is my favorite because uh, it just is. Let's put it this way. Your victims are probably never going to be insulted by what we do on Dateline because Dateline is so sensitive to victims. And we don't want to do anything that would either expose them unreasonably or um, for, you know, for no good reason at all, or, or makes them in some way re-traumatizes victims. Mm -hmm. But the other show that's out there that I think is really good is a show called um, The First 48, which is not like, you know, it's not a drama. It's just another Dateline-ish kind of show. But what it does is it follows detectives in the first 48 hours of any investigation. And those are the most critical hours. Those first 48 are going to determine your success. Most of the cases I'm working 
you know, if they had been installed in the first 48, of course, I wouldn't be working them. So if you get further and further out from those first 48, it gets it gets harder because what happens is your your suspect at some point starts to destroy evidence and starts to cover his trail and he's got time to do so. So uh, by the time you're 30 years after the fact, I mean, he's lived a whole life and covered it well for 30 years. So the first 48, I think, is the best show out there that covers what cops do. Now, as far as drama goes, you know, we're part of a three generation law enforcement family. So Blue Bloods is something when I watch it, I think, oh, you know. Not that we had those kinds of dinners, uh, but we had some, some were pretty close. I look at that and I think, yeah, that's, I like it just from a personal level because I've experienced some of that. But yeah, that, those two are probably my favorites. You know, you know, just a, maybe a concluding thought here. You mentioned the, the first 48. I'm thinking about that person who, like you, ended up in church to please somebody else, or maybe they're there right. for another reason. And suddenly God starts to work in their life. Something catches their attention and how important it is for, for pastors, Christian leaders, friends of that person to be attuned to what's going on in their life, because there's a key time in their life that they can really invest in and be giving support and maybe giving resourcing. And so maybe that's another way we can think about even the the discipleship moment that we're in, whenever God starts to stir, are we attuned, right? Do we have eyes to see and ears to hear the language that people are saying that communicates an openness? And then are we equipped with the resources to give them That's answers right. or to give them reasons or to give them angles, right? To, to push them in the right direction. Right. And of course, you've done your bit to give us one of those resources, person of interest, why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible, published by Zondervan, authored by Jay Warner Wallace. Jim, thanks so much for taking this time to be with us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Appreciate you taking the time to listen in. The Wesley Seminary podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. I trust we've done just that today. Thank you, Connor, for your production work. Certainly appreciate you being such a great teammate. Jim, thanks again for taking the time to join us. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. I was honored. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again, everybody. Trust you all to have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.